Uh, it's John the Baptist week. How about that, right? John the Baptist was the front runner for Christ. And um, actually, I was preparing for John the Baptist before empty graves. And then I got sick and Bree preached. So now I've got it ready. And uh, we're diving into the announcement of Jesus. So Matthew chapter 3, 1 through 12. If you have your Bibles, turn there. Matthew 3, 1 through 12. If not, the scriptures will be on the screen behind me. Um, let me read you the account, okay? It says, in those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, he is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. Verse 4, John clothes, John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. He's a real man, right? People from Jerusalem and from all over Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptize, he denounced them. You brood of snakes, he proclaimed. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Verse 9. Don't just say to each other, we're safe for we're descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. Verse 11. I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But someone is coming soon who is greater than I am. So much greater that I'm not worthy even to be his slave and carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gather the wheat into his barn, burn up, uh, burning up the chaff with never ending fire. Crazy, right? John has come and he's announced the entrance of Jesus and his whole, the whole purpose of John the Baptist, as you heard, was to be the front runner of Christ, to pave the way, to open the door, to make way for even greater to come. Uh, when I was in college, we, I, I played baseball at a small college for a little while, and there was this, the big deal that you got to choose was you got to choose your entrance song. It was like this 30 to 60 second clip that would play when you went from on deck to the plate. And I mean, it was like a really, really big deal. And people would pick their, you know, their songs to represent their mindset and their attitude. And it was this, it was this massive thing. And we would go through this whole thing of, of getting the right clip so that when you went to the plate, and it was always the, the boxes, it was always the boxes' responsibility to make sure the clip played right as you were approaching the plate. So uh, mine, any guesses? I can only imagine. No, I'm just kidding. Are you serious? We're here to ball, man. Inner Sandman, Metallica. I was coming for heads. I was, I was 450 dead center. When it, when it came time, that Inner Sandman, Metallica, the big drum bill and everything, I was like, yeah, I'm ready, right? Get in the box, gritting my teeth, ready to roll. But I had a friend who, uh, man, he was so 
particular about his entrance. Like, he would not go to the plate if they messed up the queue. And he had, his name was Jaron Meisenhelter, and it looked like Jeremy Mysterious. So he, he would, they, would, they would announce his name, and he would get so mad if they called him Jeremy. He would, he would be standing in the on-deck circle, and they would say, Jeremy, Mr. and he wouldn't even go up. He'd go, man, what is wrong with these people? Get my name right. And then they wouldn't play his music, and he'd be standing there, and he'd be up so upset. And then finally, the music would start playing, and, and he'd have to wait it out, you know, because you've got to wait for your hype moment in the song, right, when it, its, when it reaches its peak. So he's standing over there, and he'd clear his donut he'd tap his cleats, and he'd just be waiting, and finally the song would start, and then he'd, you, you could tell. He was like, once the entrance music was right, and once he was getting hyped, he'd go walking up to the plate, and he was a terrible hitter. He batted ninth. He, was, he never, never did anything great, but he'd, he'd you know, get all amped up, and then he'd go up there, and he'd, he'd dig into the box, and he'd get all set, and the music was ripping, and Jaron was only ready when the entrance was right, and if the entrance wasn't right, dude, it was a mess was over with for him. He would mail it in. He was finished. He was upset. He was annoyed. He was looking up at the box. He was looking to us. What do you want us to do? Go, go up to the back. There was something about the entrance for him. When we, when we look at Jesus and we look at Jesus' life and Jesus stepping on to the scene, there is something, someone who comes before Jesus who has to get the entrance right. That was John's responsibility. Can you imagine being the announcer for Jesus? Can you imagine paving the way for him? So John comes, and John has three messages that he shares in Matthew 1, 1 through 12. And it is, it is the message of freedom positioned in three different ways. Saying, hey, I have come, and I have announced that there is one coming who is greater than I, and here is what you are to do. So, right, can't you see how this would have been a perfect pre-Easter message? But, you know, what, what, so now we're here, post-resurrection, but maybe we're preparing for Jesus. Maybe we're still kind of preparing to live our life for Christ. Or maybe we're asking ourselves, okay, I made a decision for Jesus. Now, what does this mean? John lays it out perfectly, Matthew chapter 3, 1 through 12. We'll start with this. His first message that he declares, he comes up, I'm the front runner, here comes Jesus, and here's my message, repent. Repent, there is freedom for you now. In fact, listen to it. It's Matthew 3, 1 through 3. He says, in those days, John the Baptist came to Judea, the wilderness, and began preaching. His message was, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, he is the voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming Clear the road for him. Let's all, let's all be first century Jews for a moment, okay? Because there is a reference to the wilderness here that we have to understand in the text, right? He says, he is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. Where have we heard the wilderness before? Children of Israel. Was there, let's, we're first century Jews. And you, you come up to grandpa and, hey, grandpa, Tell me what it was like being a kid where you grow up. And grandpa says, oh man, 
man, there was this time that my days were much harder than your days, right? That's what any good grandpa's going to say first, right? Oh, my days were much harder than your days because my days were spent in a wilderness. You see, we used to live in Egypt. And when we lived in Egypt, we were in slavery. So God called us out of that slavery and used Moses to lead us out of that slavery. And he led us to the wilderness. And looking back on it, it was our rebellion. It was our sin. It was our uh, disdain for God when it was our selfishness that kept us in the wilderness. But thank God, after 40 years, we came out of the wilderness and we landed in the promised land only to rebel again. And we decided we wanted our own kings and we wanted our own leadership. So we get our own kings and our own leadership and they take over and we rebel again. And then we find ourselves in Babylonian captivity. And you know what it was like? The wilderness. We're just stuck in our own rebellion. We're stuck in the wilderness of a place that we can't make sense of, that we don't have any idea is going on. And then you know what happened? God made a way for us to rebuild. You see, the wilderness was always the place that their sin and captivity led them to. The wilderness in this passage is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for freedom. When he says Jesus is going to come and he's going to be the voice in the wilderness that is calling you out. What he is saying is whatever you've lived entrapped in your entire life, whatever sin that you found yourself in, whatever hole that you may have dug for yourself or the pit that you don't think you can get out of because of your sin and rebellion, Jesus is the voice that calls you out of that. He's saying he is the voice in the wilderness. In other words, he is the freedom that gets you out of the place where you're stuck. He is the freedom that will pull you out of the place, the hole that you may have dug for yourself. He pulls you out of the wilderness. Repent, there is a voice in the wilderness who is shouting out, prepare the way of the Lord, clear the road for him. I had a friend who uh, worked in oil and gas. He was a company man and then an MWD coordinator, and all of, he worked on directional rigs. And uh, he invited me one time to go cook on a directional rig with him. And I was like, man, it sounds, sounds fun, right? So we went, and we were way down in South Texas. I don't even know where we were. And I was driving my truck. Uh, which is a two-wheel drive truck, and I was on these old South Texas rig roads, and I am talking, I got stuck like I've never been stuck before. My truck was, I, I could barely get the door open. I was so stuck, and it was sunk so low. I had to roll down the window. I'm trying to get out of my truck, finally get out, and I call my friend who had made it through, and I was like, man, I'm in big trouble. I, I am. I, my truck is not moving for me. You have to send a helicopter to just pick me up out of this thing because I am stuck so deep in this mud. He started laughing. He said, you've never been on an oil rig before, have you? I was like, no. And he said, give us 10 minutes. These jokers show up with like four pickup trucks, trains, a crane, and all kinds. They had this piece of machinery. That I was like, what? And he said, listen, don't worry about the truck. I'm like, bro. He's like, we got this no problem. And I mean, they pulled me out of, it, it didn't take 10 minutes. It took them longer to laugh at me than it did to get my truck stuck out of the hole. And they said, man, when you get around us, you'll realize there ain't nothing you can't get stuck that we can't get out of this place. 
We've been doing it forever. We've had semi-trucks stuck here. We've had this stuck here. That little bitty, I'm like, little bitty, man, that's a, that's a Dodge. Like, show some respect, right? But, it, I mean, they pull, it was no problem for them. Listen, we, when we realize the power of repentance in our life, repentance is us turning to God, confessing to him what we cannot solve on our own, repenting and asking him to forgive and empower us and strengthen us over it. And by repentance, he pulls us out of the wilderness. He pulls us out of what we're stuck in. Let me give you a really practical guide for repentance. I forget the author that wrote about it, um, but this is easy. Write this down for your marriage. This is worth the morning, whether you realize it or not. This is for your marriage. This is for your children. This is for your life. This is the, the blueprint of repentance. There are three things that need to be present when it comes to repentance. Number one is understanding. You have to understand what you've done. You have to have a clear, conscious understanding. Not only do you have to understand, but then there is grieving it. There is the grief of what you've done. So you have an understanding of what you've done. You have a grief. It breaks your heart. It hurts you deeply over what you've done. And then there's confession. And confession is turning to the Lord and giving it to the Lord and receiving his power and strength. If you will take those three things Right? I'm, I'm talking about marriage counseling now. Right? If you take those to your marriage, imagine if not only you would understand what you've done, but you would grieve what you've done, and then you would confess your sin to your spouse. Imagine if you would take that to your children, and you would understand how you hurt them. It would grieve your heart that you've hurt them, and then you would confess your sin to them, and you would ask them to forgive you. That's what we talk about. And when we go to the Lord, and we understand, Lord, I have messed this up. It breaks my heart and I confess it to you, the Lord begins this work of pulling us out of the wilderness. Number two, second message from John. He not only says repent, there's freedom, but then he tells us to live it out. He says, prove it, why don't you? Matthew 3, 7 through 10, it says, but when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptize, he denounced them. You brood of snakes, he exclaimed. Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Prove by the way you live. In other words, let it come out in your actions. Canaan has a jiu-jitsu coach that always says, are you ready? And they all scream, yeah, they're ready. And he says, don't tell me, show me. Don't tell me you're ready, show me you're ready. John is saying the same thing. Don't tell me, show me. I want to see, prove it by the way you live, that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Verse 9. Don't just say it to each other. We're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. Hold on to that. We'll come right back to it. That means nothing, for I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Verse 10, even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. It's really interesting. They're talking about being a descendant of Abraham. Understand this. A descendant of Abraham was the gold standard of the day. All right. 
Who's, who's married to the, the goody two-shoes in here? Somebody, somebody has to be, right? They never do any wrong. Yeah, I can totally see it, Jen. I can totally. And your daughter is the same. She couldn't be more sweet and fresh. Okay, so the gold standard is like that. They never do any wrong. Always pure and innocent-hearted. Always, always good. That is a descendant of Abraham in this passage. So what does he say? Don't just say to each other, I am a descendant of Abraham. In fact, watch what Jesus does with the descendant of Abraham in John 8, 31 through 41. It says, Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So what did Jesus say? You're my disciples if you know me and you know the truth and when you do, there's freedom for you in that. But what do they say back to him? We are descendants of Abraham. In other words, we're already really good. We, we already meet the gold standard of the world. We're good. We don't drink, smoke, or chew or hang with those that do. We're good. We're always, we already hit the gold standard. And so look, Jesus engages them. They say, we've never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean you will be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who, slaves is a, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is part of the family forever. So if the son sets you free, you are truly free. Verse 37. Yes, I realize that you are descendants of Abraham, and yet some of you are trying to kill me because there's no room in your hearts for my message. I'm telling you what I saw when I was with my father but you are following the advice of your father. So listen to what they say. Our father is Abraham, they declared. No, Jesus replied, for if you were really the children of Abraham, you would follow his example. Instead, you're trying to kill me because I told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham never did such a thing. No, you are imitating your real father. And they fire back at Jesus. We're not illegitimate children. And Jesus says to them, your father is is the devil. And he is the father of lies. And he's been a liar from the very beginning. And that's what you're following. In other words, what does he reduce the gold standard to? Not following the truth. He says, you don't even, you don't even meet my standard, even though you think you're a descendant of Abraham. What does he reduce it to in the first passage? Stones, rocks. What does he say? Matthew 3. Verses, verse 9, don't just say to each other, we're safe for we're descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. What is he doing? He's taking the standard of the world and he's destroying it. He's taking the gold standard of the world and he's absolutely wrecking it. And he's then turning to them and he's letting them know, you have the ability now to be defined by a new person. In other words, pre-Jesus, you're good? Man, you're just like Abraham. Post-Jesus, being good like Abraham doesn't matter. So if you are the greatest, the good, and you are, you are the sibling that your parents always loved, or you're the sibling that was never good enough, Guess what? You still don't meet the standard. 
You could be the one who robs the bank or the one who's never stolen any money at all. You can be the, the one who's got a foul mouth and always cussing, or you can be the one who only utters angelic wonders out of their mouth. He's, he's saying there's no standard anymore outside of Christ. There's no standard anymore for it, which means this. We're on equal playing field. We're on equal playing field. Those in the world that may look better than you and you may think are better than you and you may, you may stereotype as better than you, they're not, better than, they're not descendants of Abraham. That means nothing anymore. That's just rocks. God can recreate that. We have a freedom now to be defined by a new person. You realize what that means. We can be defined now by Jesus, not by a worldly standard. That's what he says. Don't tell me about Abraham. I am greater than Abraham. I'll give you, you know, this is, this is a, a, a time for me where I get a little mournful because our college students begin leaving. Um, they all begin graduating and going back home and everything else. And I love them. I wind up just really, really being endeared to them, and then they all disappear. And that's part of being a church on a college campus. Totally get that. We love you, and we're going to bless you and, and pray for you and love you on as you go. Um, but I will tell you, I'll never forget college. And the reason I'll never forget college is not because I learned anything. The reason I'll never, no, I'm just kidding. I did. I'm still in school, if that means anything. Kanan said, what grade are you in, Dad? I was like, eh. I'm in 21st grade right now, son. Still going. Next May, we'll be, we'll be finished. But um, I, I remember college, and I remember uh, my, my story very briefly was I was an absolutely out-of-control high school kid. I got into so much trouble all the time. I got kicked out of the seventh grade. They let me back in the eighth. They knew they made a mistake because then I rolled into the high school and just destroyed that place and did so many terrible things until... Really about the summer leading into my senior year, um, and then I really began to catch fire for the Lord. And then my senior year, I really, I really tried to live for Jesus, and the whole time uh, I met resistance. I met resistance from people who thought I was totally faking it to get out of probation or something, right? They're like, oh, yeah, this new Christian thing with Luke, he just doesn't want to do the community service, right? Uh, it, or it was something like that. Or else uh, my friends abandoned me for it. They, did, they didn't want anything to do with me because I, was, I wasn't fun anymore, right? And so so then I was, I just kind of felt my, I found myself pretty isolated throughout high school and I was wondering about college and I had this pastor, it was such wise counsel. He said, hey, listen, I want, I want to tell you something about college. We'll hit him with this again in August. He said, here's what you get in college. You get the opportunity to be somebody completely new. He said, you're going away to college and when you get there, you're no longer going to be defined by what you did in the third grade because they weren't with you in the third grade. You're no longer going to be defined by getting kicked out of school in the seventh grade. They, they weren't there in the seventh grade. They, you have an opportunity to step onto campus and be somebody totally different. And you know what I remember most about my first four years of college? I remember the first time I showed up on campus, and when I walked on campus, I remember thinking to myself, I get to be a new person. I get to be somebody different. I get to make new friends. I get to choose my friends more wisely. I get to avoid things and no longer have it be thrown at me that you used to do this. Why don't you do it anymore? I get to be somebody new. I just don't think we realize that when it comes to the gospel that we become somebody new. We're no longer defined by the person that we were. We no longer are defined by our past sin. 
We no longer are defined by things we were involved in. We are defined now by Jesus. Jesus defines us. We identify with Jesus. Being a servant or a a descendant of Abraham or a really good person is not going to save your soul. That's what John is saying. He's saying it's being a follower of Jesus. And when we do, we're defined as a completely different person. And then finally, the last one. And I love how John frames this up. Greater is coming. We have, in other words, in John's message, we have the freedom to be lesser. We have the freedom to be lesser. We have the freedom to be less, not more. In fact, Matthew 3, 11 through 12, he says, I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But someone soon is coming who is greater than I am. So much greater that I'm not even worthy to be a slave and to carry his sandals. I love that illustration. You know, uh, in, as a rabbi, a rabbi, all of the rabbi's disciples were seen as like indentured servitude. Like they did everything that he asked them to do only. Uh, that's what I'm going to need from you now, right? It was just, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but that, that's what the rabbi, first century rabbi, he would have his, his disciples would be his indentured servants. But even then, the one thing that they weren't required to do was carry their sandals. So even if you were a follower of the rabbi and the rabbi was your priest and everything else, the one thing you didn't have to do was carry his sandals. Yet what does John do? John says there is one coming and you know what I would even do? I'd carry his sandals if he'd let me. I'm inadequate. He's greater than I am, but if I got the opportunity, I would even carry his sandals. He says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Verse 12, he is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then will he clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn and burning the chaff in never-ending fire. You know, when I think about this, I'm really comfortable about thinking about my relationship with God in terms of sin and, ob- sin and obedience, right? Like if I sin, I'm being disobedient. If I'm following Jesus, I'm being obedient. I, I'm, I'm not as good about thinking about my relationship with Jesus as greater and lesser. It's like he is greater and I am lesser, but yet that's exactly what John is doing. Is John is saying, you have the opportunity to not be a big deal. You have the opportunity to not have to have your entire life surrounded around you. Saying, actually, you have the opportunity to have someone greater than you, over you, empowering you, and leading you. And all that you have to do is become less. We're not made to be more, we're made to be less. I know that doesn't match the commercial slogans, but we're not made to be more. We're made to be less. He's made to be greater. Anyone familiar with, you know, the, the one-upper? We had a guy we literally nicknamed the one-upper. Oh, you can't beat him. Anything that you say, hey, I met this really cool person today at Starbucks. I met Hulk Hogan. Wow. Awesome, man. That's cool. Like, oh, no, no, yeah. He was really cool. They're like, man, I got chased by a dog when I was running. He's like, oh, I fought a lion at the zoo one time. Like, what? Are you serious? Hey, I went, I went, I'm going skydiving next week. Ah, done it without a parachute over the ocean. Just 
Nosedive right in. The one-upper. This guy was absolutely ridiculous. We finally got to this place where we had to confront him because one of our friends was talking about doing rock climbing. And he was like, man, when I was rock climbing, I was repelling. Oh, I, I, we're like, take it, one-upper. He's like, oh, I rock climbed. Actually, the safety rope broke, and I caught myself with one arm and did a 75-foot swing across the front of the mountain, one-armed like that, caught myself, swung up, caught myself on the other, looked like Cliffhanger the movie, and I was hanging there, and then I let go of the rope, and I free-climbed the rest of the way up. You're like, dude, you wouldn't have an arm. You would tear your own arm off. Where's this? Show, show us your scars. It's like, oh, no, I heal really good. <laughs> of course the one-upper heals really good, Right? And it was just, it was like, dude, will you take one moment to not make this all about you? Will you take one moment to let go of whatever it is that is telling you that you have to rescue and save the day and be better and be more and be triumphant? And will you just give us one time where we can meet somebody and you're not better than us? Like one time, I know we don't subconsciously do that with God, but I wonder how many times God looks at us and he says, hey, will you just, will you just give me the shot here? Will you just give me the shot? How many times have you tried to fix something before praying about it? Hey, will you just, will you just make me more? How much more time do we spend on Google, Googling symptoms than we do just praying and asking God to move? How much more time do we spend on social media than in his word, worrying about things and then following people who follow people who know about things and then learning all of the stuff that we need to do from one person and another person and everything else instead of just letting God be more and us be less. Telling you, the more we lessen ourselves, the greater God becomes. In fact, I'll just let John finish the sermon for us. John 3, 26 through 30. Listen to what he says. So John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah, is also baptizing people, and everyone is going to him instead of coming to us. Isn't that funny? Still competing in ministry. Still worried, oh, John, you're, you're over here, but there's this Jesus guy baptizing people. And what does he say? John replied, no one can receive anything unless God gives it to him from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you I'm not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for him. Verse 29, it is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his words. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. John is saying, I am so glad that he's doing it. Verse 30, he must become greater and greater I must become less and less. The lesser we become, the greater God reveals himself. The lesser we become, the more we experience his power. 